Hey guys, welcome to our online experience. Um, we are so glad that you are joining with us online. Look, we have never made it easier for you in the history of our church to invite your friends to church. All you have to do is like and share the video and your friends will be with you at church. It's so easy. They don't even have to get ready. They're just with you. Um, we're asking, we're encouraging because we're in this time where like I'm sitting here staring or I'm standing here staring at a camera in, in a room. And so it feels so weird. And, and I just want to encourage you guys share this video and and would you do me a favor and hashtag it hashtag hope is rising hashtag highland community church um, because i just want us to feel this sense of together we're in this together we're we're in an awkward time an unprecedented time a challenging time but we're in a time where god is moving too and i just want us to do it together as a church amen all right well, if you would, when, when I challenge you with amen, if you give me a thumbs up or a like or something, just to let me know, I'm going to keep my, my phone open so don't distract me, but encourage as, uh, as I'm preaching here, because I'm excited about what we're going to share. Um, quick, though, update. Um, I have been following the governor's briefings pretty closely, trying to keep on, on track with what our state is doing and how we're responding to the crisis with COVID-19. And the way that I see this thing playing out right now, according to the most recent uh, briefings by the governor, is um, he's kind of breaking things up into 14-day segments, and it's going to be the return is going to be in phases. So we don't know exactly when we're going to be able to come back together as a church. Probably when we do come back together as a church, we're going to have to do it kind of in a limited capacity. Um, what I heard from the, the governor's um, statement this past week was that Religious ceremonies outdoors will be the first thing to kind of come back. And I'm like, well, that's great because all of the churches meet outdoors. So we're going to have some things that we've got to figure out. We want to come together, but we want to do it with wisdom and we want to do it in a way that keeps us safe. We don't want to kind of go back and end up with another spike in the virus. So we're wanting to be wise um, as we kind of move forward. So um, I think we're probably looking at at least June before we are able to get back together. But um, God willing, we're going to be meeting together before you know it. Um, but I do want to stress the point that the church has not stopped. Just because we are not currently meeting in a building together does not mean the church has stopped. As a matter of fact, I am more excited about what God is doing through our church than I have been in a very long time because we are a church on a mission. We are doing some things that we've wanted to do for a long time that we haven't had the opportunity to do. And right now, God is opening up our networking opportunities. He's giving us some great opportunities to connect with people outside of our local church. Uh, we're connecting to a broader network in the city of Baltimore. We're working with other churches, other Christian organizations. Um, um, we've given away dozens of these boxes of hope. Um, this is a new in initiative that I believe is going to continue long after the coronavirus crisis has passed. And I believe that God is opening up some new doors. I mean, you just saw the video. We're launching a Bible college this fall. How cool is that? Our church is launching a Bible college this fall. We're on track. Things are gaining momentum and God is on the move. 
Um, since we started with this crisis, our church has given away hundreds of meals to people in need. We've been giving away fresh produce and fresh fruit, and um, we've been giving away eggs and milk and bread. And guys, we are moving. We are doing something. And I just want you to know what's happening because I know it's hard sometimes when we can't see what's going on and it's kind of frustrating. We're kind of like, well, what's happening? What's we are doing something. We have been working tirelessly, our team, volunteers, and we are seeing God do some awesome things. So I'm proud of our church. I also wanted to say what an awesome job our tech team has been doing in producing the video and audio, especially for the worship. Guys, I am blown away with how excellent it looks and feels, and it's able to capture a worship experience that is easy to just tune in and praise God to. So would you guys give our um, our tech team a big heart or a thumbs up or a hug just to let them know how much you appreciate their efforts for this thing, because it has been huge. All right. Well, I want you to turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 5. We are um, studying through the book of Revelation. Next week, we're going to take a little bit of a break from Revelation because next week is Mother's Day already. Um, So we are going to be taking a a break next week, and we're going to have a special Mother's Day service. Pastor Mary's been working on some things for moms, and she even has some gifts that she's been working on for moms, and so we're excited about that. But today, we're going to jump in with Revelation chapter 5. And we're going to start with verse 1. It says, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. I remember when I was growing up uh, reading Revelation for the first time, and, um, and I had a hard time because the word seal wasn't really in my vocabulary outside of marine mammals that swim around. And I used to always think that the the scroll had some kind of like a little seal that was like holding it together, like, like a seal, you know? And um, it's it's kind of funny, but that's what I thought when I read the seven seals. I, I just had this picture of all these little, actually pictured sea lions is what I pictured. But anyway, it was it, it is not sea lions or seals that are holding this thing together. It is a wax seal, which was a symbol of authority and a form of security to make sure that a document was protected in ancient culture. So there are a lot of things that a scroll could be used for in ancient times. And as you read through the Old Testament, <coughs> excuse me, has some water go down the wrong pipe. So what we read about in, in the Old Testament, and remember last week we talked about the fact that everything that we read, the symbols that we read about in the book of Revelation are anchored to what we've already read about in the Old Testament. So these are common themes, common ideas that people that are reading John's letter, they would have known about it. And so this idea of a scroll, it was common. Every synagogue had a scroll. And every every time the doors were open to the synagogue, people would roll it open and, um, and they would read the scroll aloud in the synagogue. So that's one way that scrolls were used. Scrolls were also used as... Um, historical documents. They were used to document information, and they would seal the scroll up, put it away. 
they were used to write prophecy on. So prophetic words would be written on scrolls and they would be sealed and they would be put away. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah talks about a seal where, uh, where he, he puts a seal on his prophecies. And, and so there's, uh, there's a lot. Matter of fact, um, I believe it's Ezekiel that, um, that the spirit gives him a scroll and tells him to eat the scroll. And he says that it will be sweet going down, but it will be sour on his stomach. And later John has a similar experience with the scroll that, uh, that he's reading from. So this idea of scroll has a lot of, of uh, various applications throughout the scripture. But the one that I think makes the most sense is that a scroll was used as a title deed. And what gives us the biggest clue is a couple of things. This scroll is very important, and we know it's important because of where it is. It is in the right hand of God who is sitting on the throne. So because of the fact that it's in God's right hand gives it tremendous import, we know that it's valuable and important. So as we, <clears throat> as we look at this thing, we see that it's, it's important, it's powerful, it has meaning. The second part of this is that there was writing on the inside of the scroll and on the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. Now, um, again, the number seven is, is a symbol of perfection. It's a symbol of completion. So it's completed, it's perfect, and it's written on inside and outside. Now, what leads us to believe the document that most closely represents this in ancient culture is a title deed. A title deed was one that was written inside, on the inside of the scroll, was written what the property was. It described the property. It described the boundaries of the property. It described the family lineage of the property. And on the outside of the, pro- of the scroll was, was written what was required to pay for or redeem the property that was described on the inside. And so when that was recorded, it was sealed and put away so that when the time came, that property could be redeemed. Now, here's the interesting thing. This idea of of redemption of property in ancient Jewish culture, property could never leave a family. It, It always stayed within the family. And if at any point somebody in the family wanted to get property back, for example, if a family hit hard times and they said, man, I gotta sell my property, they could sell their property, but they always had the right to get it back. And it was called the right of redemption and it required what's called a kinsman redeemer. So there was a kinsman redeemer that would come along. And if you're familiar with the Bible at all, if you study the Bible, you know about the story of Ruth and Boaz. It's probably the most famous story of the kinsman redeemer. And Ruth um, was, was her husband died and she meets this man named Boaz and, and um, turns out that he's a kinsman redeemer. And so he's able to get her and the property that goes with the family. He's able to get it back uh, by following the process of kinsman redeemer. So that's one powerful story. And it's one of those things that when you read it, kind of if you don't read it in context, you think, oh, wow, a neat romance story in the middle of the Bible. That's beautiful. And it is, it's a beautiful story, but there's a deeper meaning because the greater picture is that, that Boaz is the grandfather of David and David is the ultimate picture of the line of Jesus who becomes the redeemer for all of the people of the world. And so there's this kind of big picture, this big theme that's happening here. Another interesting one 
that goes along with this is found in Jeremiah chapter 32. And Jeremiah was prophesying just prior to the people of Israel being taken captive uh, into the land of Babylon. And in Isaiah 32, there's this guy named Henanel that comes to visit Jeremiah while he's in prison. And he's in prison because he's been preaching. And, and people didn't like preachers that didn't preach what they wanted them to preach. And so they would take them and they would put them in jail. And so Jeremiah finds himself jailed and Hananel comes to him and says, hey, I have some property that I want you to buy. Now, keep in mind, Jeremiah has been prophesying that the people of Israel are going to be taken away into captivity and they're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. So here's an adult man that's currently in prison, knows that he's going to be carried away for 70 years of Babylonian captivity. At his age, he knows that he's going to die in captivity, but he's given this option, hey, would you like to buy some property? And most of us would say, uh, no, I don't want to spend money on property that I know I'm never going to use. But what God told him was, Jeremiah, I want you to buy this property as a seed of faith because that property will be redeemed and it will go into your family line so that your descendants will have an inheritance. And so as I look at this in Revelation chapter five, verse one, to me, I see this thing as a title deed. This is something that is going to be redeemed. This is about an inheritance. It's about a reward. And so as we go down, we read verse two, it says, and I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Now, here is where I think this becomes very, very interesting because this is the piece that I believe shows us what the title deed is for. When when we see that no one is found worthy to open the scroll, the response is that all of heaven is upset about it. Why would all of heaven be upset about something if it didn't have great import? Why would it be in the right hand of God if it doesn't have great import? And we read on down. Verse four, it says, this is John. He says, then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. So let me translate this because you think about that word weep and you think, you know, it's kind of like John's watching the end of Rudy and, you know, Rudy runs out on the field and he gets to, you know, make the last play. There's only 28 seconds left in the game and everybody's chanting, Rudy, Rudy. And you're sitting there watching it at your house and you got a little tear running down your eye because you're like, finally, Rudy gets to play. This is not the kind of crying. And if you didn't cry during Rudy, you need to get saved because it's, that's a moment, okay? But this is not the kind of crying that we're talking about. The, the word that's used to describe the kind of crying that John is doing right here, it is straight up ugly cry. This is like convulsive, sobbing. That's the depth of anguish that he's feeling because no one in heaven, not even the powerful angel that's there with him, no one in heaven is able to open the scroll. And so he's, he's just convulsively crying. And so because this is the fact, I think that the scroll that's described here is the title deed to the earth. 
I believe this is the title deed to the earth, and I believe that John is crying because this is the hope of all of Israel for generations, for millennia, ever since the Garden of Eden. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and what happens? God has created man. He gave man the inheritance, the earth, right? And he says, I'm giving you earth and I want you to tend it and care for it. It's yours. It's the, the fruit of it is gonna be easy to grab. It's gonna be yours to take care of. Here it is for you. And in a moment, man in the Garden of Eden trades the inheritance of the earth for a fruit from a tree and the knowledge of good and evil. And the moment that that happened, they forfeited. Man forfeits their right to the earth to Satan, gives him the title deed in that moment. And now Satan has absolute control, absolute right, absolute rule over the earth. And it's interesting because when you when you read it, uh, as, you, as you kind of go through scripture, you see different places where Satan is known as the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air, right? When he goes to to tempt Jesus, he shows up to Jesus and he says, hey, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of this world. Jesus never says, shut up, Satan. They're not yours anyway, right? Which would be what you would think that he would say if, in fact, what Satan said wasn't true, but Satan did have the authority over the kingdoms. Satan did have the right to rule because man gave Satan the title deed that God had given to man. And so now Satan is the ruler of the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of the kingdoms of earth. He has the right to trade it to Jesus for Jesus' worship. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to get it the right way. And so this process now that we're seeing unfold is actually Jesus taking back the title deed the right way. And this is so cool, so powerful. As we look at the story, again, everything that we read in Revelation is rooted in the history of the Jewish people. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, trace all the way through the prophets, all the way through the books of history, all the way through Christ, all the way through the age of grace. And now we see this stuff coming to fulfillment. So cool, so powerful. And so so now, um, the only way to get this inheritance back is for someone that is a man to fulfill the covenant that Adam could not fulfill. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Now we're going to look at Revelation 5, verse 5. It says, but one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scrolls and its seven seals. That is so cool. What a moment. I remember when I was growing up, my brother used to always say, stop crying, you big baby. I don't think that's what the one of the elders was saying to Jesus or saying to John, but that is kind of the, the sense is like, hey, you're crying about something that there's already a solution to, so stop. Stop crying, listen, watch, pay attention. Don't get caught up in your emotion. Don't get caught up in your hurt. Don't get caught up in what you think. Just pay attention to what's going on because this is revealing fast. And it's revealing, what does Revelation reveal? It it reveals Jesus. And so that's what we're seeing here. And so as as we read on, we read verse six 
now says, Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings, and among the twenty-four elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. <clears throat> to which we all say, that's a weird-looking lamb, Right? This is one of the problems, and this is one of the reasons why people avoid the book of Revelation is because you read it and there's so much symbolism that you're like, this is just weird. I don't get it. First of all, I've never seen a lamb with horns. And, and, and second, why is it a dead lamb? And why is the lamb that's actually dead looking not really dead? And I thought that the angel said that John was going to look at a lion, but instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb. And doesn't that sound like a contradiction instead of an affirmation? And so as we read it, it just tends to kind of be a little bit weird. And we're like, whoa. But listen to this. First of all, we need to get an idea of who God is, okay? It's only difficult for us to understand this image because we don't understand the nature of who Jesus is, who God is. We, we like to try to contain God in a little box, right? And so if we can't, if we start to have our little pictures break down, we get frustrated, we get kind of messed up. We're like, oh, okay, no, well, Clearly, because I've I've read some different articles about theologians, and they've said, see, there was a difference between what he heard and what he saw. And I'm like, no, I think that he saw both. He saw the lion that was a lamb. There's no kind of contradiction. There's no paradox for God. God is perfectly capable to be all-loving and yet bring wrath and judgment. He doesn't have a paradox for him. He's, he's able to be a lion and he's able to be a lamb. He's able to roar with power and victory. He's also able to be crucified and broken and weak. He's not threatened by these kind of pictures because he's able to be everything all the time without breaking a sweat. That's who he is. He's infinite. As a matter of fact, as we start to read these symbols, we start to see that that's exactly what John is describing. The infinite nature of God. The seven horns. If you look at the seven horns, what do horns represent throughout scripture? Horns represent power. If you look at the animal kingdom, what do animals with horns do? They use their horns to assert power over other animals, right? That's that's how deer is. They go into the rut. Man, you, you see guys posting stuff on Facebook all the time when the deer go into rut and they're excited and they're blowing their grunt calls. And why? Because the deer are aggressive, cracking horns against each other, trying to take power. And so we see this picture of the lamb, we see it with horns and the horns represent power. So you have this, again, this weird kind of tension because we have a slain lamb with ultimate power because what does seven represent? It's, it's ultimate, it's complete, it's perfect, it's finished, it's complete power. So what this seven horns represents is the omnipotence of God, right? Again, last week we talked about there are words that are not in scripture, but the concept is in scripture. Here's a perfect example. The word omnipotence, not in scripture, but the concept is fulfilled here in the slain lamb. He's all powerful. Then you, then you read what's next. He has, uh, there's seven horns, and then beyond the seven horns, there are seven, I lost my place. Seven what? Somebody help me out while I'm looking here. Seven eyes. So the seven eyes, he's got seven eyes, and you're like, 
what? That's really weird. A seven-eyed, seven-horned lamb. That's creepy. But the seven eyes, again, this is eyes throughout Scripture represent being able to see and understand, right? There's this knowingness that comes with eyes. And so the lamb has seven eyes. That's perfected, complete. So he's all-knowing. Again, this is the omniscience now of God that is being seen in Scripture. So the Lamb is omniscient. And then it talks about the seven spirits of God. The Spirit of God is always present. And so the completed presence, the omnipresence of God described as a part of who the Lamb is. And then here's the other part that I think is really neat. And that is that the lamb is slain. The lamb is represented as slain. So when you see this picture of Jesus in heaven, you get this picture of the brutalized, sacrificed body of Jesus. It's interesting to me because I think that we always have this picture of what Jesus looks like because we've all seen movies. At the end of The Passion of the Christ, there's that one little scene where he's he's standing by the tomb and the light's raining behind him and his body is perfectly put together and he looks, you know, and, and you see these other movies where Jesus appears to his disciples and he's got the wounds in his hands and in his feet and his side, but they're all perfect and clean and you can see straight through them. That's not the image that we get in the book of Revelation. We don't get that this lamb is all tidy and and nice and white and pretty, and there's just this little clean cut. No, it's a slain lamb. It's a graphic, gory picture of this lamb that has been slain. The picture that the Jews would have had would not be a tidy cleaned up Hollywood version of a lamb. This what they were familiar with seeing a sacrificed slaughtered lamb and it was not pretty, it was not tidy, it was not clean. And that's the image that John has of Jesus. It's the sacrificed, brutalized lamb representing the tremendous sacrifice that Jesus was willing to pay for the people of God and to be able to redeem the earth. And so this is this is such a neat, Neat picture to me. Um, and so we see this, the Lion of Judah is worthy. He's worthy. Okay, so now let's go back and I wanna talk about the qualifications. If you're going to redeem something, remember, you're going back to Boaz and Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. We're going back to the scroll, the title deed. One side is written the description of the property. The other side is written the description of what is required to redeem it, okay? In order to redeem something, you had to be related, you had to be willing, and you had to be able. Those are the three qualifications. And there were bullet points kind of under that. I don't know that they kind of organized it bullet points, but that's how we would think of it. And so there are these kind of bullet points of all the things that you would have to do. So for example, with with Ruth and Boaz, Ruth was a relative of Boaz, or, or Ruth's husband was a relative of Boaz, which makes it seem weird kind of in our modern context. But in the ancient times, it was very important because it re- represented transfer of property among family. And what was the goal was, hey, we don't want families to lose their inheritance in the promised land because again it was divided up into Judah and Benjamin and Manasseh and so all of these different tribes had different areas and what they didn't want was for anybody to lose their inheritance rights and so you had to be related in order to claim or redeem 
the, uh, the bride of someone that had died, and you also, in the process, would receive their property. So the property would be transferred, and the bride would be transferred. And the idea is that you're going to give descendants an inheritance. And so, so as you read the story of Ruth and Boaz, you see that these guys, uh, there was somebody that was a closer redeemer than Boaz was. And so he, Boaz has to go to this guy and say, hey, do you want to redeem this piece of property? And I love, if you go back and read the story, you really should. But if you go back and read the story, the way Boaz approaches it is he says, hey, would you like to redeem the property? And the guy's like, yeah, you know, I think I would like to redeem the property. That sounds like a great idea. How much is it? I, I think, let me see here. How much is that going to cost? He says, yeah, it's, this is the cost, but you also have to marry uh, Ruth. And, and the guy's like, well, on second thought, you know, I'm not 100% sure that I really need the property. And I don't know. I really don't want to keep up with the lawn work and all of that stuff. I, I tell you what, Boaz, I'll let you redeem the property and you can marry Ruth. And Boaz, that was kind of his angle from the beginning, but he's setting it up. And so there's this redemption that takes place. And so Boaz redeems the property. Why? Because he's related. Now, let's take this to the title deed of earth. Is Jesus related? He's qualified to redeem humanity. The question is, is he related to humanity? Well, when he's sitting on a throne in heaven, he's not related to humanity. Humanity is utterly different than God. But when God chooses to become man, when God becomes incarnate, that's when he enters the family of humanity and makes himself a part of the heir, a part of the inheritance of earth. And so now, because of his relationship to man, he is now qualified to redeem the earth, which Adam lost to Satan. This is so cool. I'm so important here. And so now he has to be willing We go again back to the story of Ruth and Boaz. Boaz, not only was he able to do it, not only did he have the the relationship in order to do it, but he fell madly in love with Ruth and said, yes, not only do I have the option of doing it, I want to do it because I love her so much. And so as we look at the story of Jesus redeeming the title deed to planet Earth, what's he doing? He says, yes, I have the right to do it because I am a part of the family of humanity because I chose to come into the world as a baby. Not only is that the case, but I also love this planet. I love these people so much that I want to do it. I want to redeem the planet. I think it's so neat that this this passage again we go to this picture of Jesus the lamb slain and and it's so neat to me that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And when I think about this this picture, you know, we think about the fact that you know, nails held Jesus to the cross, but the reality is nails didn't hold Jesus to a cross. His love for you, his love for me held him to the cross. He chose it because he loves us. He loves us so desperately that he was willing to die. So the next thing that you had to have is you had to be able to do it. You had to have the ability to pay the price that was required for redemption. So not only did you have to be related, not only did you have to be willing, but you had to have the depth of resources to be able to adequately pay the price that was required to redeem the property.
And so when we look at Boaz, Boaz was wealthy. He had lots of money. He had lots of servants. He had lots of people. And so he's able to pay the price to redeem the land and to redeem Ruth. And when you look at the story of Jesus, it's so cool to me because Jesus paid the ultimate price, didn't he? He paid the deepest price for our redemption. And that was he gave his own life. He shed his own blood so that we could have the right of redemption through Christ. Man, this picture is so cool, guys. You need to understand this because Adam in a moment trades everything away. Jesus, in a moment, gains everything back. Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing. At the cross, Jesus paid the penalty and earned the right to redeem earth at that moment, okay? So the moment Jesus died and rose again, that was the moment when the title deed was given back to Jesus. Jesus had the title deed. It was his to possess, And so that's why we see it in the right hand of the father, right? But it's been unopened. In other words, it's been unclaimed. And so we're still living in this season, the church age, the grace age, where the, the, the scroll, the deed remains unclaimed by Christ until what we see here in Revelation chapter five, where Jesus comes and he claims it and opens it. And what Jesus will do during this time, and we're going to read some more about it next week and over the next couple of weeks as we talk about the tribulation season. But what will happen is that Jesus opens the seals and every seal that's opened unleashes some of the wrath of God on the usurper who has unlawfully been occupying God's property. So in this season right now, Satan is unlawfully usurping the rights and the right to rule earth. It's not his position, but he's taken the position and is occupying that space. And this is the time of grace. This is the season of grace. And it's a time where the church is expanding. The world is hearing about Jesus. The, the love of God is being spread all over. And then there's a time coming where Jesus says, okay. I'm going to open these seals, and as I do, my wrath will come on the usurpers who are taking my legal place as the heir to earth, okay? So this is, this is a, neat, a neat picture. So let's read on just a little bit further here. Um, it says, he stepped forward, I'm sorry, uh, verse 7, he stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sing a new song with these words. I love the fact that what happens when, when Jesus is, takes the scroll, it results in worship. It results in praise. Heaven is like, man, we have been waiting for this moment. We have been waiting for Jesus to claim back the earth and to take the right, take the title to the earth and establish himself as the rightful ruler. And so what happens in heaven during this moment is that praise breaks out. And we read the praise 
that is given as the the angels and the 24 elders begin to worship and they've got harps and they've got bowls and they've got incense. And if you don't understand the ancient customs and how worship was conducted, it was not conducted with smoke machines and guitars and, and, uh, and, and sound systems and videos and lighting. It was conducted with incense bowls and, and sensors and, and harps. But I'm telling you, that was the technology of the day. And they're setting an atmosphere, just like our worship team sets an atmosphere for praise. It's, it's about creating um, um, a, a, a sense of awe, a sense of excitement. And so that's kind of what's happening here. There's this moment where the, 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 the people in heaven, the elders and the, and the angels are setting the atmosphere with harps and bowls and censers and the incense is burning with the prayers of the saints and the presence of God. It's just such a cool moment. And so as this is happening, these are the words that are said. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. Think about that. The what's being described is literally hundreds of millions of people and angels singing and worshiping. Can you imagine that scene? I've been to some pretty big concerts where people are worshiping and the power and the energy and the focused attention on God is unbelievable. And that's an auditorium that seats maybe 25,000. Can you imagine hundreds of millions worshiping and roaring their praise to God? And this is what they say. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. They sang, Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. This is so cool. This is so cool to me. Just the response of heaven to this moment. And that's why we shouldn't take it lightly. Heaven is going to be erupting in praise at this moment. And then what what makes it so powerful is what Jesus did. What Jesus did was create a way for us to have heaven, access to heaven, but he also created a way to bring heaven to earth. And we're going to read about that and talk about that in the coming weeks about how God is going to recreate heaven on earth. And there's going to be this ultimate beautiful restoration and this wedding, this merging of heaven and earth. And it's going to be so powerful. And so as we look at this, I don't want to miss this opportunity to just focus in on the fact that Jesus did something extraordinary for you and for me. He made a way to redeem all of humanity. He made a way for you to access heaven. 
When I think about heaven and I think about the reality that is heaven, when I think about hell and the reality that is hell, there is a very real heaven, there is a very real hell. And God has created heaven for people who want to be with him. And people say, well, how can a loving God send people to hell? And I ask the question, how could a loving God send people to heaven if they don't want to be with Jesus? If you've spent your entire life saying, no, I don't want to know you. No, I don't want a relationship with you. No, I don't love you. No, I don't want to be around you. How unloving would God have to be to say, I'm going to force you against your will to spend eternity with the one you've spent your entire existence on earth rejecting? I think that's the most unloving thing that God could do. And so there's a place called hell, and hell is bad, not because God designed it to be bad, but because the nature of the absence of God is bad. The, the, the nature of the presence of God is joy and fulfillment and, and light and love. The, the absence of God is darkness and death and decay and rot and pain. That's what it is. And so if your entire life you're saying, no, God, I don't love you, I don't want you, why would God bring you to heaven to force you to spend time? If, if you had, ladies, think about it this way. If you had a man in your life that you said, you know, I'm really just not that interested. I just want to be friends. Just so you guys know, she doesn't really want to be friends, okay? I just, just want to settle that, okay? She doesn't want to be friends. She's just trying to make it easier on you, okay? But, but the reality is you shouldn't try to be friends at that point. Just be like, all right, God bless you. Praying the best for you, okay? That's what we should do. And because the, what happens, and, and this is, just think about this. This is the guy that is creeper, right? If there is a girl that says, no, I don't want you. I don't want to be with you. And this guy kidnaps her and takes her and locks her up in his house and treats her as though she wants to have a loving relationship with him, we would call that kidnapping. We would say, you deserve to be arrested, you creeper, right? So why would we think that God takes the role of creeper and brings an arrested love into heaven? That would be unloving. So I want you guys to understand that hell is not about God being unloving and choosing to torment people. It's that God says, I love you too much to allow you not to have the choice whether you spend eternity with me or not. And so there is a very real process by which we look at this. And I want you to understand another thing. God has not made it hard for you to live in heaven and to have a relationship with him. Jesus made it so simple and so easy. He came to earth. He died on a cross. He took the punishment that you deserve because you deserve death because of sin. Because remember, going back to the Garden of Eden, God said, if you sin, if you eat this fruit, you're going to die. Death is the result of sin. Sin is a result of your choice. Jesus says, hey, the new thing that's going to happen is I'm going to actually take the penalty for sin. And I'm going to choose to die in your place. Jesus lived a sinless life. And as a result of his sinless life and his unjust punishment for death, he now has the right to redeem earth and redeem you. 
And so his blood pays for your sins. So today, if you are in a place where you say, man, I I don't know, but I know this. I want to be in heaven. I want to be with Jesus for eternity. I want to be in the presence of God. If you want to do that, you can have the opportunity to do that. All you do is you say, Jesus, today, I choose you. I choose you. Please, God, forgive me of my sins. I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to live in relationship with you. I want to inherit heaven. I want to inherit the blessings of a life lived with you and for you and in relationship with you. It's such a simple process. And then you just start spending time with him. Do the things that he loves. Enjoy his presence and God will completely transform your heart. This is so important. This is so critical. I want this for every single person that's watching. If you don't know Jesus, I encourage you, take this time, say a prayer, invite Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life so that you can experience the transformation that he promises. God has awesome things in store for you. As we get ready to close, I just want to pray. And I want to invite you to pray with me. Father God, today... We just give ourselves completely to you. And we ask, God, that you would change and transform our hearts. Bring us into relationship with you in a new way. God, I pray that you would leverage this season of challenge and frustration and disappointment to draw us into relationship with you, Lord, because you are our hope and you are our strength and you are our joy. God, work miracles right now in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.